This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. everybody greetings everybody greetings everybody i don't know how this is going to sound uh first of all can you dig it i can i don't know how this is going to sound because um well i am i'm not talking into a mic i'm in my brother's mitsubishi lancer i believe this car is i'm in my brother's car right now and uh it is 8 45 in the morning on a sunday and i went back to ohio so Moved to Texas, went back to Ohio for a graduation party. My cousin just graduated from high school and is going to my alma mater. So that was kind of cool. So going back and helping to support him and his family. And we had a nice time yesterday. But I totally realized, I thought that last week when I did that double drop after I moved, that I recorded this week's podcast. But I realized I did not record this week's podcast. So that was a problem. And so I had to um, wake up really early this morning because we today is Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. We need a... Uh, you all are very important, and today needs to be celebrated by a lot of people. And I think it's a very, very great day. So it is Father's Day today. We are having a um, brunch at my cousin fa cousin's family's house yesterday. So the same house we went to the for the grad party yesterday. We're doing a Father's Day brunch. My grandparents are going to be there. My their family is going to be there. Some other family is going to be there. So it's going to be a very, very good day. And so I want to get this out of the way. Not that I'm you know, not doing this because I don't absolutely love to do podcasts, but you know, I need to do, um, you just need to get this out of the way. And I think actually you should not employ this tactic today, probably, especially with your dad, make your life easier or like make life easier for your dad. But I think this is a very interesting topic. I had wanted to do this post for a while when I first had wrote it, but, or first had conceived it rather. So I wanted to write this one for a while. I think it actually turned out really good. And I actually really enjoyed writing this one because it was different and it's not really that much of a, um, I would say like a, a psychological stretch for me because, you know, I kind of do this a lot and I want to make sure that I can really, you know, write it down and make sure the tactic is useful. So here we go. On November 8th, 2002, a young man from Detroit, Michigan showed the world the blueprint, the full blueprint of vocal combat in an underground arena. He stepped up to the microphone one shot one opportunity to seize everything he ever wanted. His palms were sweaty. His knees were weak. His arms were heavy. He actually vomited on a sweater. Mom's spaghetti, it was reported. The young man had every reason to be nervous. He had been roasted numerous times on the stage before. Even worse, he had choked against the very man against whom he was going to claim the throne of the underground world that night. He couldn't even get a word out that time. 
the young man had every reason not to win. The man he was going against had jumped him with his friends, fucked his girlfriend, and roasted him over being white in a genre dominated by black people. They flamed him for being poor and living with his mom. They called his friends lowlifes and losers. And the funny thing is, all of that was true, and everyone knew it. But one thing that the other people our friend the young man was going against forgot one thing. The young man knew all of that too. The two men stepped to the center of the stage, a swath of hype crowd members calling, calling out from the crowd. The MC flipped a coin and asked the young man's opponent, his tormentor, who he would like to go first. Quote, let that bitch go first, was his command. The MC, who was friends with the young man, handed him the mic, gave him a wink, and told the DJ to cue up a track. The instrumental for Shook Ones, Part 2, by Mob Deep, arguably the most menacing beat ever recorded, whined out of the speakers. The scratch of the record and the high-pitched snare tap filled the crowd, stirring them into more of a fervor. They began to chant with the beat, creating a pulsating energy that reverberated off the stone walls. The young man's opponent, who looked a hell of a lot like Falcon from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, just saying, stared at him with a completely blank stare. Our friend didn't flinch. He stared right back at him, his eyes nearly bulging out of his skull, looking like a caricature drawn in a local carnival in his white wife beater and baggy jeans. But then... He did something even more intimidating. He smiled at him. A sickening smile. One that shook, pun intended, our friend's opponent to his core. He then knew that it was over. Now everybody from the 313, put your motherfucking hands up and follow me, was his chant. The young man fired the crowd up more, repeating that line to the crowd and getting them even more frenzied. Their arms cascaded on the stage like a flood, headbanging so hard that the young man could barely find floor space to successfully stand. Yet, it was from that vantage point that he delivered his verse. And that's when the nuclear bomb went off. He called his opponent a fraud, exposing that he went to a private high school with two parents in the household. He went up to his boys and held the middle finger up inches from their faces. He outed his opponent as a chump, one who can't fight somebody without a squad around him, revealing they didn't even live in the city where the rest of his folks in the audience lived. Worst of all, our friend pulled the biggest skeleton out of his closet. His opponent's real name was Clarence. This is all commonplace. It happens quite often in rap battles. You're supposed to roast the shit out of the guy that you're facing. But our friend took it a step further. He roasted himself. He called himself white trash. He said that he and his life were the equivalents to a complete and utter failure. He called his girlfriend a hoe, his friends burnouts, and dumbasses. He told the crowd to go fuck themselves. He dissed his friend the MC, saying he was an Uncle Tom. He admitted that he got his ass whooped by his opponent and his crew, and that they went and fucked his girlfriend. He went after his opponent for dissing him, but not knowing anything about him. He then revealed his whole self and all of his fuck-ups to the world, letting neither pride nor shame get in the way. He let it all out of his system, tossed the mic to his opponent, and waited. But his opponent had no response. He simply handed the mic to the MC and walked off the stage. He choked. Okay, so if you have a brain and sense of pop culture, shame on all your houses should you not. You know that I just plagiarized the shit out of the climax of 8 Mile, the film starring Eminem that's basically a a fictional biopic of Eminem's real life and starred to his music. Well, except the part where Dr. Dre only gives him a shot because his debut single My Name Is was, quote, the most annoying shit I've ever heard in my life. 8 Mile is, indeed, a movie. A great movie, but a movie nonetheless. And movies, no matter how much we enjoy them, are largely full of fantasy. Even though this specific one was praised for its realism and how direct Eminem was at telling the story, it's still fiction. 
Not a lot of it happened in real life, or at least we'll never know enough to be sure. But fiction, just like lies, have their root in some sort of truth. Eminem gave us a lot of gems in that movie, but none was more important than that climactic rap battle against Papa Doc, who actually was Anthony Mackie before he came Falcon. I hope you all got that one. I believe it's one of the most impactful scenes in modern film history. Why? Because it shows us exactly how to position ourselves in any argument we get into. Every debate, every Thanksgiving political squabble, every awkward how did that condom get out of the wrapper and look like it got used in the couch conversation with your parents. B-Rabbit gave us that blueprint. His feet failed him not. However, there's one big catch. What B-Rabbit did in that rap battle was hard. Not a lot of people have the guts or mental fortitude in order to do it. Their ego or pride or shame will get in the way. They'll get self-conscious about something that they, they or someone else says or wither away into a shell. They can't stand on their own two feet and bring themselves down to the lowest amount of humbleness needed in order to best position themselves to be in a spot to win. That scene inspired a lot of this blog, believe it or not. How I write my posts is the same way that B-Rabbit and Eminem composed that final rap battle. I self-deprecate a shit ton. I've almost gotten too personal almost too many times on here. I roast myself constantly. I try my best to keep everything out, everything objective and to not flame my own arguments as much by pos- and fl- try to flame my own arguments rather as much as possible to see whether they melt or strengthen. Whether it's my mental health, my dick size, my skills, or lack thereof with the opposite sex, my relationship history, my emotional breakdowns, or anything else, I've always tried to be as open as possible. My consistent readers have told me that they really respect it. Although the dick size one may have been over the line. I, I get it. You don't care. Because let's be honest. No one likes it when someone thinks they're better than everybody else. That person's a dick. His actual dick is most likely small. When people can level with and relate to you, they can come to you more on arguments and methods of controversy. They understand you more. They make an effort to understand you more. And this includes intellectual and verbal sparring. There are steps that must be taken in becoming good at this. As a, people, as a person having a lot of, quote, controversial positions, I've had to adopt this. I really haven't had any other choice. The woke students in both sides of the mob in my college didn't let me. Eminem has bailed me out more than once. And I think he can help every one of you do the same. You should never see to f- seek a fight unprovoked, but you should always need to defend yourself. I've done the best to break up my eight, the eight-mile method into three steps. They're simple, but not easy. I believe that if you follow them, however, you can be in a position to win nearly every single verbal sparring match you get into, or at least come close. So sit back, relax, and soak up the knowledge of me more than me plagiarizing the real Slim Shady. So step one, reduce your ego, pride, and shame to zero. About a decade later, the television show Blue Mountain State occurred on the now-defunct television channel Spike. To say it was polarizing would be a mild comparison. The mob hated it, the normal people loved it. It was crude, funny, heartwarming, and a bunch of other shit that you wouldn't think mixes well, but surprisingly does. Kind of like a vodka Red Bull, only without the hangovers of potentially shattered glass coffee tables you could wake up to. The show, even though it ran only for three seasons, has gained a cult following, and is celebrated as one of the defining comedy shows of the modern era along with others that had a short run like The Chappelle Show and Freaks and Geeks. And it's also the perfect segue for step one. In the iconic season one episode, Marathon Monday, in my personal top five of favorites BMS episodes, Sammy the mascot and Craig the star running back of the football team are at a bar. It's Marathon Monday, where the whole university goes out and drinks for the entire day. Craig has recently broken up with a psychotic ex-girlfriend, and Sammy is showing him for his first true taste of freedom. Sammy pounds beers, run through, runs through scenario after scenario of his high-pitched voice, 
and carpet bombs Craig with possibilities of how his life is about to get so much better now that he's single. Craig, visibly drunk, starts getting emotional and spouting off to Sammy about how his ex was cheating on him, and that he was stupid for staying with her as long as he did. Sammy, being a good friend, tells her to go fuck herself and chucks his bottle of beer over his head. All is well. But then, all becomes not well. An absolute mammoth of a man starts screaming and running over the table where Craig and Sammy are sitting. He asks in an outrageously deep voice who threw the bottle of beer. Sammy, having the most transparent personality I may have ever seen in a television character, fully admits that it was him and offers him to buy him another one. Mammoth Man doesn't like that. He picks Sammy up by the collar and asks him, quote, how about I kick your ass? Then, with the whole bar staring at him and being outweighed by at least 200 pounds, Sammy looks him dead in the eye and screams the unthinkable. How about I jerk you off? Mammoth Man gets angrier and looks confused. Sammy repeats his question. Craig tries to butt in to save his friend from being creamed, but Sammy tells him to back off, and Sammy doubles down. He yells at him again, telling him to pull his pants down so he can jerk his dick off in front of the entire bar. Mammoth Man anger leaves him. Only confusion and fear remain. Sammy yells at him again. Come on, take it out, you pussy. And the whole bar starts to chant, quote, jerk him off, jerk him off, jerk him off. Mammoth Man is panicking now. He looks petrified at Sammy, who is staring at him like a madman, daring him to whip his dick out so that Sammy can tenderize his man meat. Mammoth Man gasps out, what the hell is wrong with you, man? I read at a fourth grade level, Sammy responds. After that further bewildering statement, Mammoth Man caves to the pressure and walks away, resulting in cheers across the bar. Craig, nothing short of amazed, asked Sammy what he would have done if the guy had actually stripped. Quote, eh, I probably would have just jerked him off. That scene remains to this day one of the most powerful scenes of television I've ever seen in my life. The content may be comedic, but the context is just as deep as most non-Breaking Bad Sons of Anarchy shows that I've witnessed. It's the single least amount of shame and ego I've ever seen. It was nothing short of ruthless, an absolutely cold-blooded call-out of masculinity and perceived dominance that I've ever seen. You see for straight white men, or not straight white men, whatever. See, You see for straight men, we hate being called or perceived as two things, gay or pussy. It calls out our sense of masculinity. It strikes at the very core of our identity. It puts us on immediate edge. It intimidates us and makes us feel small compared to whoever the party is that are calling us these names. For Sammy, he was pushed all the way to that edge and didn't give a single fuck. He embraced being put there. He didn't give one shit that he would have to be forced in a compromising situation where he would have to jerk a grown man off in the middle of a college dive bar. For Mammoth Man, this is an unthinkable scenario. To willingly let another man stroke him off at a bar in public? Not a chance. But Sammy didn't care one bit. For him, it was all about standing his ground. All about winning. All about maintaining his position and his side. Should he have thrown the bottle? No. But he did the right thing. He apologized and offered to compensate Mammoth Man. He knew he was in the right. But he was pressured by Mammoth Man to bow to him. And Sammy's uncompromising, albeit odd, sense of integrity and righteousness about his part of the situation kicked into the highest gear he could possibly imagine when he was pressured by him. But he could not have been possible without a complete and utter rejection of emotions that mere mortals, particularly men, cannot fend off. Not one of these mere mortals in that bar, nor the majority of men in the world today, would have dared to utter those words in public. It might be seen as gay or weird or stupid. Our ego, shame, and pride don't allow for that margin of error. To prove it, I refer once again to our friend Brene Brown, the leading researcher on shame in the modern world. Brown refers to men's shame in the metaphor of a box. 
As soon as men leave the sanctity of that box and make himself vulnerable, society clamps down on him with a fury. They call him gay or a pussy or weird. That's why very few men go there. That's why women are more outgoing and men are more introverted. It makes all the sense in the world when you look at how the two genders portray themselves in the grand scheme of society, generally speaking. But if men are able to shun these emotions, if they are able to reduce them to zero, much like Eminem and Sammy, they become nearly invincible. Nothing that anyone can say or do anything to ever hurt them. They become bulletproof to any defamation, insult, or remark. Nothing phases them. They are able to bob and weave like Ali or Max Holloway, for that matter, through the punches and then come back to deliver a haymaker to their opponent where it really hurts, their ego, pride, and shame. However, there is one massive hurdle to overcome in getting there. The rock bottom of shame, our lowest point of exposed vulnerability, awaits us. Most people, regardless of gender, ignore this place at all costs. It's a barren wasteland, not unlike Siberia. Not a lot of people go there because of the sheer horror of their own choices, experiences, and minds await. If you can understand why people would want to stay there, if you want to put yourself in their shoes. Eminem and Sammy were able to overcome the rock bottom shame to get to that point of near invincibility. How? It's honestly not that hard, but it's incredibly difficult. Jocko Willing talks about this concept all the time. You have to know your pain in order to face it. You have to beat yourself over the head with it until you become numb. You have to willingly force yourself into uncomfortable situations, knowing full well that you're going to take a shit ton of bullets in the process and hope to come out stronger. Most people do not have the internal strength to fully immerse themselves in the entirety of their being. I don't. But the more we try, the more we strain, the more honest we are with ourselves. We can get to that place where, we can, where very little can affect us adversely. We can create a place of willful and painful suffering that we cause upon ourselves in order for no one else on the outside to cause us harm. We become impervious to the noise of the outside, mostly because we are at peace inside. That is true strength. That is what fortitude means. Let your ego be bruised. Let your pride get fucked. Let your shame be broadcast for anyone to see. Good. It's better that way. In this case, the devil you know is much better than the one you do not. It's like Mar Marcellus Wallace made Butch Coolidge say in Pulp Fiction. Quote, in the fifth, my ass goes down. Step two, accumulate ammunition of your own flaws. Little did Marcellus Wallace know, but Butch Coolidge would do something other than go down in the fifth. Butch Coolidge figured out a way out of it. We wouldn't have known the best parts of three, we wouldn't have had the best parts, of the best of three parts of Pulp Fiction to show for it. He knew his position was dire. He knew he was completely at the whim and mercy of the most ruthless crime lord in the city. Yet he found a way to turn the situation better for himself. How is this possible? You see, Butch Coolidge, among others like him, didn't try to weasel his way out of his position. He didn't beg for mercy to be spared the defeat and humiliation. He didn't run from it at all. In fact, he did the opposite. He accepted a situation and bevy of bad information that came with it. All the stuff that happened after, katana and sex toys included, was because he did one specific thing. He took an inventory. Butch Coolidge knew how shitty his situation was. So did Eminem. So did Sammy. But instead of letting it weaken and demean them further, they did the one thing you should always do. They became self-aware. In order to mount a successful defense, they had to compromise a complete and utter mode of self-awareness of themselves and their position. Or comprise a complete and utter mode of self-awareness of themselves and their situations, mind you. Without that naked look at who they were and where they were in that dominance hierarchy, their methods of victory could not have been forged. They would have gone in just as blind as they were when they landed at the rock bottom of shame. This is not good. 
This is, I think, where a very important point must be asserted. The title of this argue, this article aside, you must come to terms with one painful fact. It's not about being right. It's about getting it right. That is a crucial distinction. Whenever you engage in an argument or debate, you must accept that you can be beaten, that you could be wrong, that someone could come in and kick your ass. If you shun that potential reality, if you try to make it not so that you refuse to acknowledge the validity of the other argument and the person making it, that is worse than being wrong. Much worse, in fact. It's a strict violation of the second don't. Don't be ignorant. It's the both sides of the mob engage in and enslave people's minds with. It's dogma, not debate. Don't confuse the two. This, naturally, is a very hard thing to do. It's why vulnerability is so hard, and why shame is so dreaded by every person on the planet. We don't like being wrong. We don't like when we're exposed as people who didn't somehow live up to whatever that person thought of us. We don't like when people think we're inconsiderate or lazy or stupid. But that is why the first step is so important. If you take down your barriers, if you let your ego, pride, and shame get reduced to nothing through an exclusive self-awareness, you can get to a place where you can accept your flaws, where you can be wrong and still sleep at night, where you can fuck up and not think that the world is going to fall on your head and crush your skull in a bizarre Chicken Chicken Little Lil Wayne combo. But if you can reduce those things and avoid the devastation of the Chicken Little Lil Wayne combo, you have nothing to hold you back from embracing what is weakening yourself in your argument. You can completely and objectively look at your whole being, all the tools in your tool chest, and see what you have to work with. But these tools and this awareness is only good if you use them. You have to accumulate them to serve their greatest total utility. You must take ownership over those strengths and weaknesses and figure out how to command them to best serve you. You must know what works and what does not work. In doing so, you will gain a greater understanding of those tools and how to best use them to serve your own purpose. It is important to know all of yourself. This is mindfulness, something we've talked about at length in this forum many times. Only in knowing all of yourself can you mount the best defense against someone who will show you no mercy in attacking all of yourselves. We watched a presidential debate this past Tuesday. This was in early October. Joe Biden and Donald Trump spared no expense trying to absolutely nuke each other at every step. They would have blown through our entire national defense budget in about seven minutes. Don't think that people will spar with you will not do the same. They will, especially in the times we currently live within. If you aren't okay with and comfortable with all of yourself and your positions, someone will sure as hell be okay with and comfortable with exploiting them. It might as well, it might not as be as high stakes as a presidential debate, even though one that can argue whether it changed anyone's minds at all. But it still matters. It always matters. The sad part? It's not because we're ignorant of ourselves, at least most of the time. It's because we have refused to acknowledge our non-ignorance of ourselves. We know ourselves through and through. We know how shitty we are. We know how broken we are. We know what keeps us up awake at night when the demons come out to play. We know our biases and cognitive flaws we willingly let in to compensate for our own inadequacies. If we don't accumulate those flaws and expose them to ourselves, our adversaries most certainly will. Mindfulness is the key to greater understanding of oneself. When we shun it with mindless behavior and refuse to tune into what we need to fix, we cannot create an avenue to be successful. We need our flaws and shortcomings in order to see where we're fucking up and why. Our self-awareness is the catalyst in which we can engage in this process. But now comes the most painful step of them all, but the one that is most crucial to success and winning, or coming close to most arguments you get into. Step 3. Roast the shit out of yourself before anyone else has the chance to. Most ancient philosophy and religion seems different and all over the place. A lot of people like to think that they all mean different things. 
compete with one another, and try to demean and disparage one another in the process. They're used in conversation, debate, and political talking points to get the point across in a particular issue, to prove why one is superior or teaches something better or different. I disagree. In my opinion, all philosophy and religion comes down to one concrete point. Life is suffering. The Buddhists explicitly state this. Christians and Muslims indirectly state it. So do the ancient Stoics, which was then derived into things like Enlightenment philosophy, which, in large part, built American culture during its founding. Suffering is going to happen. It is inevitable. Nothing you can do to stop it in various forms and frequencies. But you can try to channel it willingly. You can do things like go to the gym and actually work out hard. Bash your brains in on a presentation or a project for weeks so you can get a good bonus payment or grade out of it. Or you could not work out at all, get fat and unhealthy and pay the price for it. You could not study for the exam or presentation, cram for it, bomb it, and not get a good bonus or grade. The choice is yours. There's a saying out there that it's really hard to be well it's really hard to be wealthy, not rich, and really hard to be poor. This is the definition of the whole quote life is suffering phrase. It's really hard to obtain wealth by investing money properly, delaying gratification and foregoing expediency. But it's also very hard to not do these things and pay the price for it down the line. The choice is yours. What suffering do you want to endure? In Dan Crenshaw's book Fortitude, he talks about this concept in a chapter called, quote, Do Something Hard. He lays out the exact argument and points for, to willful suffering, suffering that you force upon yourself. He says that in order to get the most out of life, you must fill it with the most, as much willful suffering as possible in order to prepare you for the unwillful suffering of life so you can handle it when it inevitably rears its ugly head. Crenshaw, of course, is right, as is Mark Manson and Jocko Willink and all the others who talk about the same thing. There's a pattern here. You must be willing to put yourself through struggle and pursue it purposefully if you are willing to get anywhere. LeBron James and Michael Jordan were incredibly naturally gifted, but their work ethics are something of legend. LeBron spends $1.5 million on his body every year. Jerry Rice, in serious conversation for the non-quarterback goat in NFL history, used to run mountains in Northern California for days on end to prepare and lay bricks with his father as a child to give him incredible hand strength. Bill Gates, this might be outdated for the whole Epstein stuff, but we'll just stick with the, what's in the post. Bill Gates constantly reads books to sharpen his knowledge. Well, I guess he still does that. Mark Cuban reads three hours a day specifically on artificial intelligence in order to be sharp as possible for when it could potentially destroy the world or make it better. And the same concept applies to the arguments and positions. They need to be strong, and the only way to make them strong is to test them. You need to be comfortable with doing this on a regular basis with your positions on things. I'll let you in on a little secret I've picked up. Life is pretty fucking awful if you can't laugh at yourself or take a joke. I do it all the time. Fuck all the quote love yourself people who preach mindless positivity. That's no fun. It only makes you soft. If you can't take your own criticism, how are you supposed to take anyone else's? How can you prepare yourself for the suffering that others inflict on you if you can't inflict any on yourself first? These are questions that you need to ask yourself before you go into situations such as this. In every blog post that I write, I go through this exact process. I try to absolutely sledgehammer my argument into oblivion in order to strengthen it. I rip it apart with potential things that other people could do to rip it apart. I take someone from the complete opposite perspective and think about what they would do to refute what I'm saying. With this knowledge, I then try to go around it by refuting the points that they make with some sort of evidence or widely distributed proof of concept in order to protect it from danger. In adopting this, you've taken stock of your argument's flaws and reduced them to key hindering emotion, or you reduced your key hindering emotions to nothing. You'll become next to bulletproof. When nothing can phase you, you can hold nothing back from what to say. When you know everything about your own flaws, no one can weaponize them against you. When you roast yourself before anyone else has the chance to, you will solidify your argument so strongly that next to nothing could possibly break it. 
when you know what your opponent is thinking before they can deploy to their advantage, you will see their shots before they come flying at you. You'll be like Neo, dodging everything that comes your way, preferably in slow motion. You must be merciless with yourself in this process. Spare no expense. Leave everything on the field. Do not leave anything to chance. If you do, you risk leaving a chink in your armor that can be exposed to vulnerability from your opponent that could cripple you. Just like the idiot that designed the Death Star. Question mark on that if you've seen Rogue One. This type of willful suffering is immensely powerful because of your complete and utter control of it. Like I've said before, the choice is yours. You can make exactly whatever you want out of the scenario at hand. If the third step is taken correctly, the odds will most likely be in your favor. You can become like Eminem or Sammy or anyone else that we named. The sweetest part? You don't need to know a damn thing about your opponent. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. You can only control what you can control. And if your argument is under this amount of scrutiny and pressure that you put on under this post, I like your chances. And you probably should too. It's unlikely that anyone else goes through this type of process. Take it and use it as you will. Because the greatest weapon that you can possess is the one in which your opponent can't use. If you take all of their ammunition away from them, they have nothing to fire on you with. You'll be there with the clip locked and loaded, and they'll be stuck with, t- with nothing to use, blown away by your self-awareness and non-inherent hesitance to use it. In other words, shook. You should never seek a fight, but you should always be prepared to finish one if you come upon it. In stripping your side down to the studs and noting its flaws, you can create an atmosphere of incredible growth and improvement to strive towards. You need not be troubled by anything else on the other side. You will be completely in, con- in control of your side, and that's what matters. Nothing can phase you if you're totally at peace with how you can take command and responsibility for your own angles, positions, sides, and life. If you subordinate your emotions, focus on your flaws, and then bulletproof what surrounds those flaws, you have a good chance to win, or at least come close to win, every argument you get into. It is simple, but not easy. Then again, most things that are worthwhile are. Or your money back. Hey, this is not true. Insert disclaimer covering my ass. Okay. So thanks everyone for listening. I really appreciate I really like that post. I love that movie. I love all those movies in there, actually. There was a lot of them that I named. So I'm going to go eat. I don't really, I'm not a really big brunch guy, so I'm going to eat a shit ton of brunch food, whatever brunch food is. And I will see you guys next week. So own the day, open your mind, have a good one. Thanks, guys. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?